On today's episode, we're continuing our deep dive into the book and documentary about the legendary high school basketball team, the Dunbar Poets. Our guest today, Alejandro Danwa, chronicled this team in his book, The Boys of Dunbar, and was in the documentary follow-up, Baltimore Boys. This corner of hardwood history helps tell the story of basketball and the basketball culture we all enjoy today. It's also an American story and helps explain the difficulties of post-industrial cities and the game that helps some boys escape these difficult circumstances. Let's get into it. Welcome to the 19.9 podcast. Tonight's show, we're talking to Ali Danwa, author of The Boys of Dunbar, a story of love, hope, and basketball. He's also in the documentary called Baltimore Boys uh, and is editor-in-chief of a website called The Shadow League and probably a million other things. Welcome to the show, Ali. Hey, no problem, man. No problem. Actually, the former editor-in-chief oh, okay. of the Shadow League. Okay, my, my bad. I, I, I was uh, just Google, you know, it can steer you wrong. So it's always nice to be checked on, on reality. <laughs> uh, so let's jump right in. I wanted to start right, right from the top and figure out like, how you came to be the documentarian of this, because it's just such a, you know, it's such a great story. And, and it's just, I just was curious if it found you or if you were looking for something to write about or how, how, what the intersection of this story was for you. Sure. Yeah. You know, it actually found me years prior. So I didn't grow up in Baltimore. I grew up in Brooklyn, in New York, New York City, and my buddies and I were basketball junkies. We had a court directly behind our building, and we spent an inordinate amount of hours back there playing, talking, arguing, (laughs) debating, and um, so we're out there one day having one of our playground debates, and we're talking about, obviously, you know, we're... 10, 11, 12 years old, and, you know, we, we think we know more than we do, and, and you know, we, we just really kind of arguing and, and making our case that New York City is the king of basketball. <laughs> so, you know, we're throwing out names like Tiny Archibald, yeah. who was from the South Bronx, right? And nope. Dr. J, Julius Irving, who was from Long Island. Um, and, and we're talking about all of these names, right? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Connie Hawkins. And, you know, there were guys a little bit older than us that we followed around to the playgrounds all over the city by the name of Dwayne the Pearl Washington, Walter Berry, uh, Chris Mullen. (laughs) And then there were also guys our own age who we were playing against in different tournaments by the name of Malik Seeley and Kenny Anderson and all of these great players. And there was a guy who lived in my building and he was a magnificent playground basketball player. Had he had the mentality to actually go to school and do something 
with basketball. I have no doubt that he would have been a major Division One player. Had an opportunity to play in the pros. He was about six foot six. Had a sweet jumper. Could handle the ball. I mean, he was incredible. But hmm. he chose to live a different lifestyle. So he's out there. He's always amused by us, right? And we, you know, he was one of the guys that we would follow and we would watch him play against Pearl Washington and Walter Berry and Chris Mullen and these guys. So he says, yeah, you know, New York is the king of basketball, but the greatest team I ever saw was from Baltimore, Maryland. (laughs) So we're like, wait a minute, the greatest team you ever saw, because at this time, Magic Johnson and the Showtime Lakers are humming. Yeah. Dr. J is killing it with the Philadelphia 76ers. (laughs) Bernard King is just creating magic every night at Madison Square Garden. And so we're like, the greatest team you ever saw? He said, I'm I'm lying to you. Not greatest team I ever saw. High school team from Baltimore, Maryland. They got the number one high school player in the country. But the crazy thing is, he's not even the best player on his own team. (laughs) So we're like, well, you're going to have to explain that, right? Because he's the number one player in the country, but he's not the best player on his own team. He's like, trust me, this guy, Reggie Williams... When he goes to college, he's six foot seven, can handle the ball, can shoot, can rebound, can pass. Just magnificent, man. He is incredible. Wait till you see him in college. Okay, so if he's the number one player in the country and he's not the best player on his own team, then who's the best player? He says, you're not going to believe me. So we're like, come on, Mike, who's the best player? Because you're not going to believe me. We're like, come on. So now we're thinking he's joking. Yeah, man, sure. you're full of whatever. <laughs> so he says, dude, the best player on that team is a five-foot midget, <laughs> and his name is Bugsy. He oh called him Bugsy God. with a B. <laughs> so then we really thought he was playing with us. Yeah. Yeah, right. The number one player in the country, not the best player on his own team. The best player is a five-foot midget named Bugsy. <laughs> that sounds yeah, okay. made up. <laughs> right? Yeah. So a couple of years later, I am tuned in to this innovative college sports television network with this idea of 24-hour sports programming. Right. And they fill a lot of those Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights with great college basketball games, ACC and the Big East. Mm -hmm. So I see Reggie Williams at Georgetown. I'm like, that's Reggie Williams. That's the guy Mike was telling me about. Right. And so Reggie obviously wins a national championship as a freshman at Georgetown. He is the most valuable player of the national championship game. Gives Hakeem Olajuwon and Five Slamma Jamma some work. Gives it to him. One year out of Dunbar High School. Right. And so then I'm like, then I learn as I'm watching this that David Wingate was his teammate. So I'm starting to put these pieces together. Yeah. Now, I received a scholarship for talented minority students. So I left New York to go to a prep school up in Massachusetts outside of Boston. So being the hoops junkie that I was, you could go down to the Boston Garden and you could watch some great college basketball games. And there was this guy at Northeastern by the name of Reggie Lewis, who was unbelievable. Mm. And then I found out that he was on this Dunbar team. (laughs) that I'd heard about. (laughs) So one night, I'm I'm in my dormitory dormitory common room and I'm watching an ACC game. I'm glued to the television and I watch Wake Forest. 
and I see the most revolutionary basketball talent I've ever seen in my life. Five foot three inch Muggsy Bogues who could control a basketball game without scoring a point. And I jumped out of my seat when I made the connection and I screamed to nobody, that's Bugsy! That's Bugsy! <laughs> and the guys who were in that that television common room just looked at me with like shreds of sympathy. Like this dude is nuts. He lost it. He's lost, he lost it. Right. Oh so now I put those pieces together. Yeah. And so, you know, back then I followed the box scores. Right. So I would get the Boston Globe every morning. And I would look at the box scores to see how many assists Muggsy had, to see how much Reggie scored, to see how much, you know, uh, and I had the opportunity to actually physically see Reggie Lewis when he was at Northeastern, coached by the great Jim Calhoun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just to see Georgetown win that national championship, to see what Muggsy did at Wake Forest, to see what Reggie did at Northeastern, and then to see them all go into the pros, that story always kind of stayed with me. Yeah. And then uh, I moved to Baltimore about 20 years ago, and I had started doing some work for the um, the Baltimore Sun. They had a great high school sports section at the time. So now I'm starting to navigate my way around Baltimore, and now I'm in these gyms, right? Yeah. I'm in the Lake Clifton gym. I'm in the Dunbar gym. And it was like looking at those banners and seeing those names and like the ghosts were just talking to me. And so I had this idea like, hey, you know, I think this would be a great story. And I didn't initially think of it as a book or a 30 for 30 documentary. I just wanted to write a story about the greatest high school basketball team of all time and put some of those kind of elements and those pieces together. And it actually started out as an idea for a magazine story. Hmm. So I reached out to an editor at Sports Illustrated and sent him about a two to three paragraph pitch. And he got back in touch with me and said, man, this is a fantastic idea. But right now, you know, we're really not farming out stories to freelance guys. Hmm. And if it's not really the A-list guys, you know, just to be honest with you, you know, they're probably not going to bite on it, but you've got a really great idea here. And so I was like, okay. How how old are you at this time? Let's see. This was, I had just gotten to Baltimore um, had been here for a while, so I want to say this is around 2006, maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's like pre-internet. So it's like now you'd almost think about like f- figuring out how to. You could even just put it up yourself or something like that. But yeah, just yeah, just yeah. like that's so ambitious. How did you even think to? Co- did you have to like reach out to Sports Illustrated, or how did you even like think think of that? Like you know you've got a good story, but you're just like I'm gonna write. Yeah, to I Sports actually Illustrated? reached out. I reached out to them. Uh-huh. You know, just sending an email in the blind. <laughs> and I actually had a buddy of mine who was a writer who had done a couple okay. of tennis stories for Sports Illustrated. So, you got a little so he said, hey, this is the editor that I've worked with. Yeah. I'll let him know that you're going to reach out. Okay, that's cool. But what he did for me, you know, which was something he just, he didn't have to do. Um, and, it, and it made such an impression on me. And it's why, you know, I always try to, if I can, you know, help other people out in this business because it's a very tough <laughs> 
business, you know, magazine yeah. writing, newspaper writing, um, just sports writing in general. You know, people kind of look at TV and they see these bulbous headed <laughs> personalities yelling and screaming and they think it's easy yeah. to do it. Right. But, yeah. but Stephen A. Smith started out writing about high school sports yeah. for the New York Daily News yeah. and, you know, worked his tail off all the way up through the Philadelphia Inquirer before he got a shot to be on TV. Right. So it's kind of really difficult. But what the guy at Sports Illustrated did for me, unbeknownst to me, was he reached out to an, an agency that represented uh, writers. And so I got a phone call from a guy and he said, hey, I'm from XYZ Agency. Um, Chris from Sports Illustrated sent us your pitch. We want to talk to you. So I called him back. And they said, um, we really like this story and we think it's much more than a magazine story. Do you think you can turn your three paragraph pitch into a 60 page book proposal? Mm. And I said, well, does, you know, Bigfoot defecate in the woods? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's like, do I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't think it was a book, right? Yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't even thinking that big. But. Somebody did you, did you have enough, enough material? I mean, like, were you, I'm, I, I mean, to hear that would be super exciting, but also that's like one of those things you say yes immediately and then maybe freak out afterwards a little bit like And excited. then you're humbled, right? Yeah, so, exactly. And because like I wasn't a huge name and I didn't have a previous book under my belt, they were like, we're just going to have to make this irresistible. Right now, mind you, I've got a full-time job, a part-time job. I've got <laughs> kids, you know, I'm just like trying to scratch and stay afloat and survive. So, you know, I had to work on this thing whenever I had an opportunity. Yeah. Well, uh, I, and it, I, heard always a, I heard a saying the other day that, that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. So that's, I, I wrote that one <laughs> yeah. down because I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to write that down too, man. Yep. Um, and so like, People don't understand when I tell them that the whole process from starting the book proposal to actually getting the book published took 10 years, Gosh. right? <laughs> and five years of that was actually working on the proposal. Wow. And then the next five years of it was actually writing the book. Wow. Uh, so, okay. So uh, walk me through the proposal. Cause one of my questions was like, I was listening to Bruce Springsteen be interviewed the other day by glad Mar Malcolm Gladwell and uh, <laughs> Rick Rubin. And they're talking to him about music and lyrics. And there's a lot of like the way that you write, because it's so descriptive, I'm thinking of like music and lyrics. And I'm just thinking like, how, wh where do you start to go through? Cause newspaper articles and box scores, they're not painting a, pi a picture like you do of these games. Like I, I watched the documentary right. and I love the documentary too. And you've got, there is some footage in there so you can watch the guys in action, but I enjoyed yep. the, the descriptions of the games a, a, as much because it just filled in a lot of yep. those holes. And, and I was thinking though, you know, reading it like, okay, where do you get this? Cause that isn't in the box scores, you know, the way that you're talking about yeah, Muggsy yeah. And, th and stuff like that. So where do you, where'd you start right. like lyrics or, or music? Like where did you start to paint this picture? Well, I had to first come up with an outline, right, of mm -hmm. what the story was. And so in my mind, I wanted this story to start at the first day of practice. Mm. But I knew that 
it really went well before then, right? It went into the incubator systems of the Baltimore City Recreation Centers. It went into the childhoods of these players. Um, you know, it it went into the classrooms and the hallways. It, it wasn't just about the basketball. I needed to capture kind of who these people were. Mm. And so what what really was helpful to me was living in Baltimore. I didn't live too far from the main library branch on Cathedral Street. So I would go down and I would just read the, the microfilm of the Baltimore Sun, the Baltimore African-American. Um, and then there was another Baltimore uh, paper that's escaping me at the time. But there were two daily newspapers. And then you had the the Afro-American paper as well. Mm. So what I did was I just started reading. I took a two-year window, right? And not just the sports section because I wanted to get a sense and a feel for what life was like in the early 1980s in Baltimore, right? From an economic perspective, from a blue-collar worker perspective, to a local political perspective, to a sports perspective, to a cultural and arts perspective. And then I really just honed in on those stories about the basketball games because one of the things about Baltimore is high school basketball is huge here. Right. And so those newspapers like really did a great job of covering those teams and really making you feel like you were at those games. So I had access to the box scores and because that team was so dominant, all of their games were basically in the paper, <laughs> right? Which you, which you won't find, uh, you know, from, that era, from yeah. a team that's just, you know, not that good. Yeah. But because they were that good and those sports editors really understood what was happening, uh, they really opened up a window to me. And then, so I had those resources. And then, like I said, I was, you know, doing some work with the, with the Baltimore Suns high school sports section. And so I'm passing Bob Wade at some of these games. I'm passing Herman Tree Harid, who was one of the great players, uh, Muggsy and uh, Reggie and Reggie's senior year. Um, Tree transferred in from another high school. So I, I started to form relationships with the people who were part of this team and just talk to them. And, um, you know, eventually once I got to the proposal stage and figured out, like, I had an opportunity to really do something significant with it, um, you know, they were, they were very supportive in terms of telling me their story. I love, I love that. And I think there's something about this book. You hit on it there a little bit. Um, and, it, and the documentary starts out with the, the riots, but bringing in the city of Baltimore helps to just, I don't know if it's deepen it is the right way to say it, but it, it definitely rounds out the story of it. It gives this context to uh, not just about the games, but the, the lives that these players were living. And I, I, it makes it feel so, so like such a modern story. I think that sometimes when I read, you know, sports stories in, in, when I was younger, it would just be about the games and you miss out that on that context so much about what these guys went through to achieve what they achieved. And it makes the story more exciting and, and, and memorable and sometimes even heartbreaking. Uh, some of the things that they had to yeah. go through. Yeah. I mean, living in Baltimore really helped because I understood that the city was going to be just as much of a main character as 
Bob Wade was, as Muggsy Bogues was, as the other players were. Um, you know, just, just because it's it's a really fascinating city. It's the northernmost city of the South. It's mm. the southernmost city of the North. Um, it has this this great history of um, you know the shipyards and um, just just so much around the blue collar wage and, and and the economy. And you know, Baltimore played a really really big part in the early evolution of, of the country <laughs> so I, I really kind of understood what Baltimore meant I understood the values and the work ethic and I understood you know walking the streets and, and going to those gyms and being in those hallways of those schools like what sports can mean to a community that's really really struggling <laughs> And then when you put that in context with, you know, these guys from 81 to 1983 is when crack just explodes on the scene. And even prior to that, I mean, that that East Baltimore community was a very difficult community to, to, to come up in. But what I wanted people to understand is that even within those, you know, struggling pockets of despair, you know, there's love, man. There's yeah. like mentorship. There's there's so much that goes on in the school systems and the recreation centers and the mentors and the, the youth league coaches, right? And so it's not just this barren desert of... <laughs> death and killing and drugs, man. It's like real people with real talent, with real intellect, with real drive, who were part of, you know, the the civil rights movement, not by reading it in a book, but by actually being a part of it, you know? And so you just had all of these different elements. And And I think I got really fortunate, Aaron, that I kind of stumbled upon a story that, because initially um, I thought I was writing a basketball story, right? The greatest (laughs) basketball high school team of all time. Well, maybe if it had been a, you know, just an article in a magazine that you might have had to focus on that, you know, the the, the opportunity to write a book about this, it just opens up so many avenues to explore these guys' lives in in more depth. It's like the difference between a movie or, 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 you know, a a 10-part, you know, series on Netflix or something like that. Yep. So I think I got really fortunate. I kind of stumbled upon something that um, I, I saw the emerging power and the potential of the more I started working on it. So, you know, the more excited I got about it. And then what was really cool and interesting was, you know, I was inter- interviewing the players individually, but I felt like something was missing. And so what we started to do, we, we would have these group conference calls, man, and that's when all the jokes came out. That's when all of the stories were like, oh, I forgot about I forgot about that when we were at the Harlem Y (laughs) and I was afraid to go to the bathroom, so I took a piss out the window and, (laughs) and, you know, that's when all of the really cool magic began to happen, and and that was a, a huge challenge, right? You're trying to reconstruct something that happened 30 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, to, to, to get those guys together and just to hear the laughter and to hear the story and to hear the love that they still have, not only for one another, but their principal, Mrs. Woodland, right? Yeah. Or... How you doing? Manner, how, what was it? Which, how you doing, baby? The, the that yeah, chapter, yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Every student, how you doing, baby? You know, <laughs> knew everybody that. by name and yep. pull them to the side and said, "Yeah, you know, I talked to your mother last night." And that was another really cool and interesting thing that this was a multi 
generational thing, right? Mm. So Bob Wade knew Muggsy and Reggie Williams' parents before they were even born, right? Because he was a star player at Dunbar. All of their family members had gone to Dunbar. So it wasn't like he just had these really cool basketball players. Like, there really was this extended sense of family, Mm. right? And a buying into the philosophy of the team is is bigger than just one individual, right? Yeah. So, you know, Bob Wade had a neighbor who was an accountant. Uh, Reggie Williams would work at the store that Bob Wade owned. <laughs> so on the weekends, you know, he would stay over at Coach Wade's house. Yeah. And the neighbor would come over to tutor him in math, right? Right. Um, and, and that was just kind of one example of the love and, and the family. Like, you know, those guys would sit down and eat dinner together before they ever showed a hint of promise. Like, Bugsy and Reggie Williams were best friends before they ever picked up a basketball. Mm. So can you imagine, like, just having that sense of seeing these guys as kids in the recreation center, playing checkers and running around and grabbing on the back of city buses on roller skates, <laughs> and then they discover this magical round orange ball that takes them all over the world. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, because a lot of them, too, you talk about our, were into baseball. It was it was a bigger thing at the time, and I, I was just reading John Thompson's uh, book, too. Uh, I came as a, a shadow, and he's really into baseball, too, so it was more of a, 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 at the time, more of a thing to be into baseball rather than basketball, and some of them wanted initially to be baseball players. Yeah, yeah, baseball was huge in the African-American community, and Baltimore had one of the really, really good Negro League baseball teams, right? So, you know, those guys' uncles, you know, their their fathers, their grandfathers, they, they all played baseball. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So I, I'm curious, like, how the high school game, it, Indiana, it, we love our high school basketball around here. But I, I was curious if you could get a sense, uh, even New York City high school basketball is huge, too. So I'm curious what you found out or what you think about why, why is be- high school basketball in particular so big in Baltimore? What is it about the high school game that connects it to the, to the city? Well, I think it's connected to a sense of pride that people have for their schools, for their neighborhoods, because they're not just representing themselves, right? So as I mentioned, um, you know, Muggsy's older sister, Sharon, she was a phenomenal basketball player at Dunbar High School who, had she been born today, probably would have played at a major college program and had an opportunity to play in the WNBA or overseas. She was the one who taught him the game, right? So his parents went there, his aunts and uncles went there, his older brothers went there. Hmm. There was this sense of pride that you had when you put on that uniform. Um, and it's and it's a power. That, that was one of the things that struck me when I moved to Baltimore. One of the first things people asked you was, where'd you go to school? But they weren't talking about college. Yeah. They were talking about your high school. Yeah. Right? And that <laughs> oh was kind gosh. of the, the, the first question. And then everything else kind of flowed from there. Uh. And it's still that way today, just this sense of pride 
that, that the schools have. That, that, uh, that moment. And, you know, the... Baltimore is not a huge city yeah. like New York. Um, you know, 600,000 people, maybe, you know, the borough of Brooklyn yep. is bigger than Baltimore. Queens is bigger than Baltimore, right? So you, you have this kind of small community that's connected in many ways. And sports has always kind of been something that kind of elevated folks who were kind of going through some um, not so pleasant experiences. And that was one of the things that really struck me when I wrote the book and, and talking to some of the older people when they would say, like, I didn't know how I was going to pay my gas and electric bill. I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent. I didn't know how I was going to put groceries on the table. But for that two hours, when I paid three bucks <laughs> to walk into that Dunbar gym and I got to see that team, I forgot all of my troubles. Mm. And I walked out of that gym feeling like there was hope and happy and energized, like, okay, it's going to be all right. And that's a pretty uh, incredible thing, you know, to explain to people who don't understand the power and majesty of sports, mm. right? It's, yeah. it's so much bigger than the final score. Community, And that's right. one of the things that I like to do as a writer is I'm not going to go to cover the game. And I love to watch the game. Right. But to me, the power is the story behind the story. So we were talking about uh, Coach Wade, and I was just curious about you know where where you started with him and what what he was like. What were your impressions of him? You know, so as I mentioned before, I was doing some work with you know the Baltimore Sun High School Sports Section, and I had come across Coach and some of the different gyms and you know the football games and stuff. And um, when I had this idea, I ran it by a buddy of mine who had been a longtime writer at the Baltimore Sun, and he said, you know, Coach Wade does not trust reporters; he doesn't trust journalists because of what happened at the University of Maryland. He said. But I think I can kind of talk to him and make an introduction, and at least he will give you a fair listen. Um, but just to let you know, like you know, he has an, he has um, he's kind of known for being abrasive to some folks and not very trusting. Right, that was the reputation. So, you know, my buddy had a relationship with him and he introduced me to him and we had a chance to kind of sit down and, you know, I laid out what it is that I wanted to do. And, you know, he was in support of it. Um, and, and, you know, he was just such a fascinating character and, and he's probably the glue that holds this story together because he was a product of Dunbar himself. Uh, he was a great athlete. He was the starting quarterback on the football team. He was a serviceable sixth man on the basketball team. He was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds as a baseball player. He went on to play in the National Football League. Um, but he was adamant that he wanted to have the same influence on his community and on young people through the power of athletics that his high school coach, the legendary William Sugar Kane, had on him. So while Wade was playing in the National Football League, he was coming back in the summer to attain his teaching certification. And, you know, when he had to abruptly retire from the NFL because he uh, shattered his hand and for all intents and purposes, having a shattered hand as a defensive back, especially back then when the medical technology was not what it is today, uh, he knew what he wanted to do. Hmm. And so just to think about 
the number of lives that he affected at Dunbar because he just wasn't the basketball coach. He was the football coach. He was the baseball coach. Um, wow. he, he had a huge uh, influence and, and personality in that building that went beyond whatever happened in the gymnasium. Yeah, there's depth. There's depth, real, real depth to his involvement in these guys' lives too. He's not just coach and then they they go home. Like he knows like what they're doing after school. Like you said, he's got them coming over on the weekends, helping out with jobs and just, he has this under a level of understanding of his players. That is just that, you know, you almost would have had to have come from there, right. To, to know how, what these guys need to reach the success. And like you said, you know, maybe he, he got that from his coach had, had the blueprint laid out for him a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he, and he was very serious about understanding because he had come from those same streets. Right. Mm. But he also understood that in his day, like you showed you were the toughest guy by using your fists, <laughs> right? That, yeah. that kind of graduated towards knives, yeah. right? And then maybe an occasional, you know, gun being fired here and then. But now he is navigating in a situation where because the drug trade takes over to the way that it does, I mean, you got semi-automatic, powerful rifles, um, you got bloodshed in the streets, innocent victims. You know, when he was coming up, the, the criminal element kind of kept things to themselves, right? They stayed away from the schools and the, the senior citizens, and it was kind of a self-contained thing. But when those profit margins really exploded and those powerful weapons got in the hands of 13 and 14 and 15-year-old kids that didn't have discipline, yeah. um, it, it was a very kind of bizarre place for him to understand like this is the place that I love this is the place that I'm from and how can I help these kids that have some promise you know get out of here and get an opportunity to see and do other things and you know you just don't find that today on on those levels of basketball because I'm you know I'm sure you understand what happens now on the elite kind of levels of basketball on the AAU and the high school level. The high school coach is uh, about important as the third period <laughs> biology teacher. Yeah. I can't right? almost can't, can't be involved. Like they're just kind of rem- removed from these guys' lives in, in different ways, especially yeah, at, the, right? at it's, that it's level. The AAU coach that's got all the juice. Yep. What sneaker company are you affiliated with? Right. There's a handler like this. So much stuff that goes on. Yeah. And that was just a different time, right? Before the the big money moved into summer basketball, when the high school season really meant something. And that's how the story was passed down to me, because an older guy that lived in my building in Brooklyn, New York, (laughs) went to the Harlem Holiday Classic at City College and saw this talent by the name of Muggsy Bogues that just blew his mind. And that's how the story initially got told to me in real time. Hmm. And then, as I talked before about reading the box scores and going to see Reggie Lewis at Northeastern and seeing the Georgetown National Championship and seeing Muggsy at Wake Forest and then to see what they did in the NBA. um, Yeah, yeah, you just, you don't see it now so much in terms of the high school coach. Not that there aren't high school coaches with that same level of passion and and that same want and desire to help these kids. 
Um, you know, but, but Wade was the guy who had all the juice. He was the one taking him to five star over the summer. <laughs> he was the one handling recruitment uh, because he understood how things could kind of get out of hand with some of these families that didn't understand or some of these kids that could get swayed by a few quick bucks. Um, so he was he was a father to guys that had fathers, right? But to the guys that didn't have yeah. fathers in their lives, you know, the role he played, you, you can't even quantify it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you hit on a couple of things there. One, I got to do a quick aside here. Does Baltimore, you know, you, you're from uh, Brooklyn. So does Baltimore have the best nicknames in, uh, in, uh, in history? Cause you've got honey dip in there, which is an incredible nickname. And you t- mentioned sugar Muggsy. And I want to talk about truck here in a minute too, but uh, yeah. just, just personal opinion, uh, Brooklyn versus or New York city versus uh, Baltimore. Who's got better nicknames? Cause those are some amazing ones. Uh, it's got to be Baltimore, man. It's got to be Baltimore, <laughs> right? Because, like, these guys, they, they get their nicknames when they're kids. And I know. it sticks with them uh, their whole life, right? So, I like, with some of these guys. He got his nickname because he was stealing the ball from everybody on the court when he was a little kid. And they watched the Bowery Boys on television. <laughs> and they said, man, you like that guy from the Bowery Boys. You mugging everybody out there. <laughs> Right? Oh, that's, truck, that's truck so perfect. Truck got his nickname because he had the appetite of a garbage truck, <laughs> right? And that just stuck with him since he was a little kid. So, so great. Yeah, yeah. You know, as, as much as I love New York City and I love Brooklyn, uh, Baltimore is a special place, especially as it relates to people's nicknames. And they get them when they're very young and they stick with them for life. Yeah, and we won't go into it now, but I think some of the stuff you said about the, the difficult things in Baltimore, Honey Dip, Skip Wise, who maybe was the best player in Baltimore history, not on this team, but he talked about his career and just super fascinating. Had me in doing deep dives into the books that you that you shouted out to, the Terry Pluto book and Caught in the Net. Just oh, that, that whole aside is um, unbelievable. I, I would encourage everyone to read the book and, and uh, get to that story too. But uh, wh- before we uh, wrap up tonight, I wanted to talk a little bit about Reggie Lewis because he becomes a real focal point in the documentary. And it is crazy to think about that he is the sixth man on this team. And he seems yeah. like such a modern player too. Like his telling or the way that you tell it about him kind of wanting to be a wing player. And I mean, Reggie Lu- or Reggie uh, Williams and David Wingate too. Like they look like modern players. It is incredible. Like yeah. these guys are huge. I'm six, you know, early 80s, six, seven, six, eight. And they just could move and dunk and dribble. Um, un- unbelievable. But t- tell me a little bit about Reggie Lewis and just a, the, the, you know, where you started with him. Cause that's a, you know, a different end point, obviously wouldn't have been able to just talk to him as much or get him in with those other guys. Yeah. So a different. Yeah. Kind and, of, and, and that was tough, right? Because yeah, yeah. The, to really flesh Reggie out, you had to depend on the memories, right. Of the other guys. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they would, they would talk about his personality and, you know, they knew him before he got to Dunbar from the neighborhood, uh, you know, but he'd been cut. Uh, by the Patterson coach, yeah. right? And, you know, his coach at the recreation center called up Wade and said, look, man, I got this kid. You know, I, I don't know what's going on with the coach at Patterson because, you know, uh, Truck's older brother was a star player. Irvin was a star player at Patterson. Um, but he got cut from the team for whatever reason. And he says, look, you know, I, I'm going to send him to Dunbar. I think the best place 
for him to be is to be with you. And Wade calls him back after like first checking him out in the summer leagues and said, man, that, that coach at Patterson must be an idiot because there's no way you're supposed to cut that kid. You know, and he was very humble. Um, and he walked into a situation again where guys had established reputations. Uh, he had yet to fully establish himself as a great player in the city. Um, but in those practices, like he showed people and, and Wade, you know, could be abrasive <laughs> at times. Right. So, you know, there were times where he rode Reggie and said, well, you can't shoot. You know, I'm, I'm not going to play you a guard or you can't dribble or you can't pass. And this guy would stay in the gym by himself late at night. Right. Setting up obstacle courses with chairs and cones and shooting drills. And, and the most fascinating thing about it is when you look at the trajectory of this team, he was the sixth man. Yeah. Right? He didn't even start on this team. <laughs> but. When you go up and you see him as the captain of the Boston Celtics, given Michael Jordan the business, he became the best one out of all of them. Yeah, crazy. So yeah. so incredible. Man, yeah, I, a lot of lot of stuff in there, man. A lot of stuff. In yeah. There. Okay, so I got I got two more before I, before I let you go, and I just want to thank you again for coming on tonight. Um, it's been a few years since these these came out, so you know, writers are, are always like wanting to add something else. Like you have to turn in the manuscript at some point and you had 10 years. So you're working on it for a long time. So I'm sure maybe you're ready to just give it up, but I'm curious now that you've had some time away from it. What, is there something that you would add or, or what, what would you, what would you change about it? Uh, just if you had a kind of addendum to it or, or a reprint or something like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't really think I would add anything to it because, you know, one of the things that I tell people is you really have to read the book and then watch the documentary, right? Because they're mm. separate entities. Yeah, so I agree. The book takes place in one high school season. Yep. There's a lot of history, right? We learn about the great Skip Wise, the greatest basketball player to this day. Anyone from Baltimore will tell you, man, Carmelo Anthony is Hall of Famer. He's amazing. He's incredible. But he wasn't Skip. Yeah. And no one is or no one probably will ever be the great Wise, right? Yeah. Um, you, you got all of those history of the, the recreation centers and, mm. and what those meant to the development of these kids and their talent. And you, you just got, um, you know, so much in terms of the families and, and Bob Wade and, you know, just what Dunbar means and, and what these kids mean to these people who come in to watch these games. So, you know, the book was one year. Mm-hmm. 1981-1982. The documentary goes through their high school, their college, and their NBA. Mm. Right? So it's different. So when people tell me, hey, man, I, you know, I saw the documentary. That was great. <laughs> um, now I don't have to read the book. <laughs> I'm like, no, uh, you got to no, read no, the yeah. book because it's different. It's a 100%. different you know, story. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, I don't think I would add anything. Like, it's... It's something that I that I look back on now, and I don't have any gnawing things like, oh, I should have said this, or I missed this part of it. It's like, That's good. you know, now I, I just don't have any sense of, man, I wish. I, I will say that one thing I do wish, we interviewed John Thompson yeah. 
for the 30 for 30. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, the way the paperwork trail and stuff, huh. um, by the time, you know, things were, you know, going through edits and, you know, the film was getting ready to air, they still hadn't had the release form uh, uh, from him. And for whatever reason, that just got delayed and it didn't happen. But I sat down and I interviewed Coach Wade for a couple of hours on the campus of Georgetown. And he admitted to me that the biggest mistake he ever made as a coach at Georgetown was not listening to Bob Wade, who told him to recruit Muggsy Man, I as know. their point guard. He was like, but he's just so small. Oh. He's a great high school player. I just can't see it. And he looked me in the eye and said, if I had Muggsy with Patrick Ewing, oh. Reggie Williams, and David <laughs> Wingate, he said, he said, it's I would have won three national it's championships. O- it's over. Just just mail it in. That would have been so... so that's I, the I, only thing I would look at in terms of like these two kind of these family projects of what what was missing. I really wish folks could have seen him yeah. say that. Yeah, we didn't even get into Wingate, but he, you know, there's a, you tell it in there about his recruitment too with uh, with uh, Coach Thompson. Just so so incredible to hear about like what, what it must have been like to have uh, John Thompson showing up in people's houses and in the early eighties to recruit these guys too. Cause he's just a, such a legendary figure now, but he's just getting started. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So, so he was just getting started back then. They hadn't yeah. won a national championship. You know, David Wingate said, I didn't even know where Georgetown, I didn't even <laughs> know they had a basketball team. Like we never saw them on TV. Well, John, so when Tom- this man, yeah. yeah. When he walks into your living room <laughs> and he sits down at the table talking to your mother and your father, oh, and you're like, okay, okay. this was Bill Russell's backup with the Boston Celtics. And yeah. he's like, I'm going to take care of your kid. I'm going to make sure he gets educated. But if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, I'm sending his ass back. Well, had to be like, like kind of know, a comforting thing weight. too, like for coming from coach Wade, just seems like a natural extension of, of him natural in some extension. ways, you know, just like right. same type right. of character. And that's what they all, that's what those guys said that, you know, Reggie, the, it's funny, like one of the things he said when he went to Georgetown and after the first couple practices, like he was doing everything so easy and John Thompson pulled him aside and was like, you know, he said, man, this ain't nothing compared to what we went through at Dunbar practice. So I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. I know. <laughs> we were similar. Yeah. Yeah. Similar. yeah they, they were similar personalities in terms of, you know, being concerned African-American professional men who really wanted to give these kids an opportunity to survive and understand that the ball is going to stop bouncing someday. Right. So yeah, they wanted to win. They won championships. They did some incredible things as athletes. But like when you look at all of those guys now, like a lot of them have been involved if they're not still involved in coaching and, and mentoring kids. Yeah, no, there's no doubt. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we, some of the like smaller details are so incredible talking about the the study tables that coach way put in and John Thompson too. same thing. Like he didn't play with guys grades. Like that was so important to him. And you know, the, you mentioned the practices and I, I, there's just too much to, to, to talk about, but I definitely encourage people to read the book. And I, I think you're right. Like now that you say it, that really locked into me because that's the order that I went. I, I, I read the book and then watched the documentary and the documentary feels a little bit like an extension, even though it retells some of the stories in, there. Uh, it feels like a little bit of an extension to the book, uh, telling some of their college and pro careers. And honestly, the five-star uh, magazine that Slam put out too, you've got some of the story about uh, uh, Muggsy going to going to five-star and Coach Wade being up there. That is, that in itself is an incredible story about that draft, the way that they drafted yeah. 
flares. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep, yep. There's some there's some really there's cool, so like much. lighthearted stories, right? Like the trip to New York and staying oh, in the YMCA, man. right? So good, yeah. The trip to <laughs> Pennsylvania and uh just you know, some of the fun, lighter moments of you oh, know, when these guys laughing. were just kids. Yeah, you know? just cracking up. Yeah. For sure. Yep. So so before we go then, last thing, what what do you got going on? Tell us what you got going on now because we're you've been if, if there is stuff that you can tell us about because I, yeah. I I'm excited yeah. to hear what you've got coming out next. Sure. I, I can't give you details on this one project, but I'm ghostwriting something nice. uh in the basketball space that folks are really gonna be interested in. Um uh, I'm I'm working on I've got uh a proposal for another sports book. Um it's not gonna be strictly basketball mm-hmm. uh, but it's going to be kind of a, a New York story and it's going to be around basketball and boxing and oh, nice. um, some just really kind of important elemental kind of moments um, and then I'm working on uh, some more uh, film proposals uh, both of those would be kind of high school and, and college basketball related so I'm hoping to get a couple of other if not ESPN 30 for 30s you know maybe yeah. something on HBO or Showtime or Netflix to tell some of these stories. So I got got a little bit of something going on, both in the writing and the producing, and and hopefully some film stuff. And um, you know, who knows? I will definitely keep you abreast. And uh, love talking to you, man. Had a great oh, time man. talking about the Five Star Project with you so guys. I love what you guys do, and best believe you'll be the first one to know when I can talk about something oh, that's ready to go. Can't can't wait. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight, Aaron. I appreciate you, man. Anytime you need me, you know where to find me. All right, man. Thank you for listening to the Nineteen Nine Podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review. It helps keep us going. We also have links to all of 99 social media so you never miss a release. Until next time.